Welcome to season three of This Is Me. My name is Katie Matten and in the previous two seasons, Siobhan met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you'd like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. Hi, my name's Rachel Montgomery. I'm a makeup artist. At 48, I was diagnosed with breast cancer after finding the original lump when I was 21. There's some stains on your photo. They all cracks on your rusty frame. I grew up in Botany um, in New South Wales and you know, very ordinary, normal childhood, the youngest of three and the only daughter. And, you know, public school left a frustrated artist. I always wanted to be an artist and it, I ended up uh, working in hotels instead for a long time until um, eventually I started doing makeup, uh, which was around 20 years ago. The cancer story starts well before the cancer, unfortunately. Uh, I was in a domestically violent uh, relationship. Do you feel comfortable talking about that? Absolutely. Yes, because I was just about to say, I want to make it clear it wasn't my ex-husband. My daughter, my beautiful daughter, Hannah, uh, was my 30th birthday present. She was born two days before my birthday. So that was lots of fun. The, the baby blues kicked in right around my birthday. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we were, of course, over the moon. Um, I was married at the time. And, um, and we stayed married for around 13 years. It wasn't working anymore, unfortunately. Um, and I just want to say we're still really, really good friends. After that, I um, began a relationship with someone else. Um, and... It was a DB relationship, so it was um, it was abusive, um, but not violent at first. And I and and I want to mention this because this is what happens to a lot of women. So I was with this man for four years, and it was the the old frog in the pot thing. You know, the the frog goes in the cold pot, and you put it on the stove, and before you realise it the water's boiling and, and you're in big trouble, basically. And, and that's what happened to me because I've always been so strong. Um, well, I thought, thought I was strong, strong-headed. Anyway, nothing was going to beat me. They're often the most shocking of crimes and today the shocking numbers to match. Domestic violence cases have surged in Sydney. I remember there was a very big red flag, um, the first incident, and, and we, were, we were having a laugh about something and he turned very quickly and said, what kind of person are you? And I was laughing, thinking he was still joking, and he, he wasn't. And it's like he kind of flipped. And then I, I copped a barrage of abuse. Um, I actually still can't remember what the argument was. And I just put it down to stress or blah, 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 whatever. You know, I made, like, I don't even know. I made some stupid excuse. That is the kind of stuff that started happening. It was all, there was always something I was doing wrong. There was never any re- positive recognition unless it um, had been preceded by some kind of mental abuse or, you know, verbal abuse. It got to a point, and I remember him saying to me once, oh, we haven't had a fight in over a week. 
And I thought, I know what that means. And sure enough, the next day, it was another explosion. And I, I came to later down the track realise that that is what they call the cycle of abuse. Understanding the cycles of abuse can help us make some sort of sense of a relationship where a person behaves in both loving and abusive ways. The first violent thing that happened was I decided one day I was just not going to cause any problems so I'm just going to ignore everything and I walked downstairs to the kitchen and I I had a, a glass jar full of sugar and I was making my coffee and he came down and he smashed it across the room out of my hands and said have I got your attention now then there was another incident where I you know we ended up on the street um on the way to work my car had broken down and um so he was giving me a lift to work and it started in the car and I ended up on the the side of the road in one of Sydney CBD areas and a, a woman pulled over and offered me help and I said, no, no, I'm okay. And I still remember the look on her face, you know, and I, I just didn't get what was happening to me. It's, it's a very strange thing because people always say, well, why did you stay? And it, you really just don't even know it's going on. At that point, he got violent. I remember him throwing me sort of like a rag doll around on the the pavement and I had a woolen jumper, quite a thick woolen jumper on and it had ripped all the way down. I'd been thrown onto the road um, and I had bruises all over my um, my knee and it was, was cut. Uh, I had my makeup kit with me, which is a, you know, 30 kilo case. So I grabbed it and got out of there Then I went home. And what were things like when you went home? It wasn't good because it was always my fault as well, you know. And then afterwards he'd go through this whole remorse, which again is part of the cycle of abuse. Uh, And I remember him saying to me, I know how bad it is, but you don't, if you knew what it did to me after I behaved like that you'd forgive me. Number three in the cycle, the making up. I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. You made me do it. I don't know what I was thinking. It was always with men about helping them and wanting to fix them and wanting to be, I guess, I don't know, the mother they never had. And I think I was, I was always attracting these wounded souls because I was searching for something in myself. It culminated on New Year's Day 2018, 19 where um, he had what I believe was a psychotic break, um, which ended up with me uh, being punched in the face when I was on the ground. Um, You know, I fought back. I'm not a sympathetic victim. And then I called the police, but instead of saying, you know, this is a bad situation, I need help, I went back into my hotel manager mode and I was like, I've got a situation here and I need someone to come out and calm it down. All professional, because I knew he was going to absolutely lose it. And he, he tried to drag me out the front on top of my case and ended up the front and he ended up out the side naked. And it was just, a, it was craziness. And the police came and um, I was talking to the female officer and she said, you know, did he hit you? And I stupidly said, no. But the way I said it to her was, no. Like, yes. You know, and I said, I'm all right. 
I look back on that and I think to myself, how did she not know that I was, you know, in a big problem here? He was blind drunk and I was fairly together myself. So, um, and they basically left and said, you guys just need to keep separated. Uh, continued on to the, through the night and my ex-husband actually came and helped me, took me away from the situation. It then took me... I think two months after that to find somewhere else to live. Did your daughter ever see him abusing you? She um, heard him. Um, She never saw him do anything violent to me. And she's quite a firecracker. And I think he's actually very lucky because um, I think we're all very lucky she never saw that, obviously. But, um, you know, it's had terrible effects on her. and, you know, there's nothing I can say to take any of that away. And I do blame myself, as all mothers do. But all I can say is that I just didn't realise how bad it was. I um, found a new house for my daughter and myself. Was he OK with you leaving? It was a really interesting process, actually. I remember not long before I left him saying, you know, would you consider still marrying me? And I remember looking at him and I said, well, I don't think as I'm moving out, this is the right time to be discussing it, you know. Um, And he, of course, went crazy sort of trying to prove that he was okay and there was nothing wrong and blah, blah, blah. And then I moved and I saw him one more time, which was really stupid, and we had a big incident. And he was driving and grabbed coffee out of my hand and threw it out the window and missed and it went all over us and he said to me you're nothing but a see you next Tuesday (laughs) and um, I also got a text from him once that said I have just realized I hate you more than I've ever hated anybody in my entire life. Now when I eventually left him I screen grabbed that text and it stayed on my desktop so that every single time I opened it I saw it because I really needed to be reminded of what it was because he was so charming too so obviously you know narcissistic and and all those things. Now when we talk about narcissism and any type of abuse we oftentimes think of the term narcissistic abuse. I was in the bathroom during the break on the night where he was going crazy and it was literally minutes before I got hit. And I was had decided I'm out of here, I'm going out. And my girlfriend had called and said, just and there was one girlfriend in particular that was just like, get out of there, come with us. So I decided um, to put some makeup on. So I'm in the bathroom just very quickly, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, give me a sign. If he hits me in the face, That's the sign. I said, but I don't want to get hurt. Not five minutes later, I'm on the ground and he punched me. That was a very, very memorable moment. That was the final straw for me. And and we got out of the house and we were, for the first time in my life, in my own place, on my own. And it freaked me out. Um, I remember standing in the kitchen on my own and I had, you know, I'm a a bit of a candle girl. I had all the house filled with candles and I had 
everything the way I wanted it for the first time in my life. And I couldn't cope. And I, I had a massive anxiety attack. Um, I remember my poor daughter walked in, as she always does, on the spot. And she just walked up to me and grabbed me and, and hugged me. And um, I don't even know what I was looking like at the time, but it was, I just remember this massive feeling of being overwhelmed by the fact that I couldn't even be on my own. And I wasn't afraid of anybody coming to get me or anything like that. It was just that I'd never really done it before. How old was and your daughter at this stage? She was 16. Unfortunately, because I had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, I guess it's like, you know, when you get to the lowest point and you realise you then have to work on something, you know. It's not enough just to get out because, you know, I would have ended up in the same situation again. I've heard so many people say, I don't want to go to a psychologist, you know, that, well, you know I don't need to talk, talk about this. And it's, I, I cannot stress enough, it's not about talking to someone. One of the first sessions I had with her, she smacked down a piece of paper in front of me and it was the cycle of violence, the cycle of domestic abuse. And she said, does that look familiar? And it was my life in a circle. You know, the build-up to the aggression, the explosion, the remorse. You know, to know that it is that common, it really was stunning. And this was the, the build-up to just before I found out I had cancer. How old were you when you first noticed a lump in your breast? I was 21. You know, the first thing I thought was, it's got me. Uh, and I went and had it biopsied and it came back as just a benign cyst. Did anyone suggest at that time to have it removed? Oh, no, no. They were 100% uh, confident that it was nothing. And it just sat there dormant. I'll admit, I had a great time as a 20-year-old. Did all the wrong things. You know, who knows? It could have been my lifestyle that was the catalyst for the breast cancer. I, look, there's so much we still don't know about it all, so... When did you notice something had changed? So, um, I get in the shower and swashing and I was like oh my god it was like a golf ball sticking out overnight and so you know the first thing I did was completely ignore it it's gonna be okay hey look what I've just been through there's no way I've got cancer no way so I went on you know for the, the next few days and then and, and this is how I work subconsciously I decided I needed to stop smoking and go see the doctor about not smoking. I nearly left the doctor's office without asking him about it. Um, I was literally out the door and, and said, oh my God, one more thing. I've got a bit of a lump here and he's the most beautiful, gentle Egyptian man with the most wonderful accent. And, and just as a, as a soul, as an energy, he was a lovely, lovely man. And so he's, he's here and he's examining and he was just there a little bit too long. And I said, yeah, it's everything, I mean, it's okay, isn't it? Everything's all right. And he didn't respond and he just kept, and I literally went, 
is everything okay? Are you worried? And he looked up at me and he said, Rachel, I'm very worried. I was like, no, this is, this is not, this is not good. This can't be happening. Within, you know, minutes, we're sitting there, he's organising tests, all of the tests. But within a week, uh, we knew, we knew what it was. Um, and I was always laughing because the people that did the, you know, the radiography, um, the poor girl, <laughs> that job. I mean, how do they keep, when they see that someone's got something, how do they cope when someone's got something really bad? And I never forget the look on this poor girl's face. And, and she was over there and my daughter was in the room. My daughter looked at me, looked at her, and I was like, oh no. The number of women being diagnosed with breast cancer is on the rise across Australia. The frightening find prompting calls for urgent action. It was the, the worst week of my life, I think. Um, as a patient, a new patient to this sort of thing, you, you don't know what you're supposed to do. I think I'd met the oncologist and everything. I'm pretty certain it was Friday the 13th. Basically, they said to me, yes, it's positive. You've got triple negative cancer. And that began my cancer journey. Another beautiful doctor, radiographer, he was sitting there. But he did say to me, he said, oh, so you've had this biopsy before. And I was like, well, nearly 30 years ago. And he said, have a look. And I looked and you could see a mark from where they'd last done it. And I was like, just because you've had it checked doesn't mean you're forever okay. And I'm, I, I'm very well known for my delayed reactions to things. My daughter always says, give her four days, give her four days. And I know it's really funny because it took me four days to get myself to the doctor <laughs> when I first found the lump too. And I used that, I guess, detachment that was probably caused by the PTSD and, and the trauma um, to my advantage during that process. So when you were told that it was cancer, when it was confirmed, what did you say or think or do? The first thing that hit me was that I was going to have to tell people and that I was going to have to tell my daughter, who kind of knew anyway, but that I was going to have to talk to my parents. And I knew that uh, because my mother's mother died of breast cancer, that this was going to be big. You know, I came home and, and told the parents um, and they were remarkably stable, cried, got emotional. It's possibly one of the hardest parts of having cancer is actually having to tell people. The most common response, and because I had cancer, I can say this word whenever I want now. I don't know if you realise this. But the most common response I get was, fuck, and I don't know what to say. And I would say, you've just said what I've been saying and there is nothing else you can say. I said, I don't even know what to say. How can you possibly know what to say? Just realising some people really love you is, um, is an amazing, is an amazing thing. I think the main cyst was five centimetres big. 
what they call triple negative. So triple negative means um, that you're negative to the three hormones that can cause cancer. Now, the problem with that is that it means that it's most likely a gene. And if that was the case, they'd have to remove both breasts and do a, a full hysterectomy. They said to me that it was a fast growing one. The first question I got off everyone was, what stage are you? And I remember saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I was very confused by the term early stage breast cancer because I'm like, this is an early stage. They're going to cut my tits off. <laughs> you know? So um, how could that be early? You know, it's really interesting. At no point did I think I was going to die. And people say to me, oh, you're so strong. And I, I'm really not. I think it's a human survival instinct. Of course, of course, there was a fear. But I was so not even determined. It was just I knew that there was stuff for me to do and that there is no way that it was my time to go. You know, they say, don't ask why me, because it's not why you, it's, it, it doesn't discriminate. And, and that's true. But yeah, I did go through that, went through a lot of anger, huge amount of anger. But yeah, you know, we sat down on the, that initial appointment and they explained to me how it was gonna work. Um, and yes, I would be losing my hair. Cancer is a very emotional disease. And yes, it eats your body, but it eats away at your heart and your mind. The operation, it was really quick. I remember sitting up in bed and, and taking a photo of it. And I, and I really, and I was lonely. I was really, really lonely when I had cancer. It's a loneliness that you can't describe. And I felt compelled. One, of course, make myself feel better as well by connecting with people. I first thought, look, I'm just going to tell everyone what's going on. I've always hated social media. It used to give me an anxiety attack, having to post photos of my work and all that sort of thing. And so there was a bit of freedom in just for the first time in my life saying, hey, this is me. And I was really myself on my Instagram page. And that led to being more about myself and telling the story and talking about when I was so angry, I didn't know what to do about things and you know, where I wanted to scream my head off and, you know, beautiful bits of advice that people gave me and stupid things I was thinking, funny things I was thinking. And it was just after Christmas and um, my brother Troy was diagnosed with neck cancer. We became the brother and sister of the cancer unit at the Prince of Wales Hospital. And we went to treatment together and we went through the cancer together. And, and look, my, my treatment was horrible and long, but I wouldn't wish his cancer on anybody. His treatment was bad. I had chemotherapy for intravenously for, I think it was around six months. And then I had the operation and they found micro specks, a few of my lymph nodes. So they, they took, I think, seven of them out. I consider myself really lucky because I know people who've had radiation for breast cancer and, and it sucks. But what I did have to have was more chemo in tablet form after the operation. The tablet chemo, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I wasn't coping. I started to get 
almost suicidal. The steroids that they used for Donald Trump when he had coronavirus are the chemotherapy steroids that they give you. So that's why he felt like Superman, because <laughs> that's what I felt like after my first dose. Uh, the nurse called me the next day and she said, how are you feeling? And I was like, I feel fantastic. I can't believe this. I thought I was going to be vomiting and da, 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 da. And she's laughing at me. She goes, yeah, that's the steroids. They will wear off. I went at 1.6 days without going to the toilet and had to go into hospital. That was possibly one of the most horrendous experiences of my life. And then there was a point there where I'd, um, I got an infection, then pneumonia. I'm sure they must have told me. I, I, did, I didn't get it. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, and I was getting annoyed because they wouldn't let me out of hospital. And I said, look, you know, I had a fight with one of the nurses. There's people here that need this room more than I do. And she's just looking at me like I was some sort of lunatic. I, I finally got the meeting with the professor after I got out of hospital and he's like, oh, we nearly lost you there. <laughs> and I was like, I had no idea. I had no idea. Didn't feel like it. I was, you know, annoyed. I was exhausted. But, yeah, there's something, there's something to the whole your body kind of steps in for you. I was really sick. Um, I, I, I can appreciate that now. But I was doing all sorts of crazy things while I was... Well, I was sick. I just, it's like I just wouldn't acknowledge it. I mean, I didn't get a wig. A lot of the time I just went around bald. It started off very slowly and I had all sorts of crazy ideas that I, my ponytail was going to fall off in the middle of a shopping centre or something like that. But, you know, it, it happened very slowly. And I remember sitting at the table just pulling at my hair and bits coming out. And then I realised there was a ball of hair on the table. I thought, oh, this is actually happening. I've spent my life helping women put their suit of armour on, if you want to call it that. And we do, as women, we, we have our armour. We have, you know, whatever, wherever it might be. It might not be makeup. It might be clothes. It might be what you do. What... But I think, you know, the makeup thing, the hair thing, it's, it's, it's our way of expressing our personalities too. I mean, I think we're very lucky as women. We get to play dress-ups, you know, and that's fun and it's part of who a lot of women are. So it is confronting and I remember I said very early on I'm going to lose my hair there's nothing I can do about it I'm going to be fine and I remember my daughter consistently saying to me you're not going to be fine there's no way you're going to be fine with that and she said to me you've got to cut your hair now because you're going to freak out otherwise and she was absolutely right because I was like it's only hair you know this is cancer but I loved my hair. Unfortunately, these kind of drugs don't target just cancer cells. They affect other rapidly dividing cells in the body as well, like hair follicles. And it sounds so superficial, but you know, one of my biggest insecurities was the fact that I always had this massive forehead. So losing my hair was like, oh my God. And because it's just kind of like, really? Really? Do I have to, we have to lose, do that too? And we all look the same. We all look the same when we go through chemo, you know, and it's a very confronting look for the average person as well. And I did notice that I became hyper sensitive and hyper aware of how rude some people can be and how, you know, not connected some people can be. But there were so many incredible silver linings that we were popping up everywhere, you know, um, and in public, you know, I hate to say this, but the, the doctor actually said to me at one point, you know, the good thing about cancer is you can play the cancer card. And I was like, 
that's a shocking thing to say. And he said, you'll thank me later. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing like being offered a table <laughs> when you're not well. <laughs> and there's nothing that makes that happen more than a bald woman with no eyebrows or eyelashes that walks in. I was on the, the chemo tablets and um, I'd gotten to a point where I couldn't cope and I was waiting for my, in the waiting room for the professor's appointment and I fell apart. And he said, well, the good news is we think you've had enough, so you stopping today. And I <laughs> cried and laughed and cried and carried on like a lunatic <laughs> for a bit. Um, and that was, that was when it was over. And I said to someone yesterday, I've only, I think in the last month, six weeks, I've gotten my energy back. I got my chemotherapy bill and it was $20. And, um, and again, this is a really important piece of information for anyone who's got private health care. Um, I met many people through this whole experience and, and one of them, name, her name is Lil and a beautiful woman and she was telling me that they were going to go through the private health care but the excess was $120,000. You do Medicare and you get all the same doctors, you get all the same care. You do have to sort of remember that things are going to get better and I was very negative there for a while but things have gotten massively better and my life has changed for the better because I had cancer. One of the best bits of advice I was given was from my mother at the beginning. And she said to me, Rachel, you scream and cry and do whatever you need to do. As long as you're safe, get it out. Get that poison out. A lot of people were saying to me when I was unwell, oh, I'd have friends talking to me about stuff and then they go, oh God, what, what, you're the last person I should be complaining to. And like I say, everyone's got a context. so. You might not have had cancer, so you can't understand what I've been through, but your worst experience to you in your context is still bad. Everyone has you know, a space that they come from. I don't think we should discount anybody's problems ever. What would you say to anybody else going through something similar to what you went through? I'm really sorry. You can do it. You really, really can do it. Try not to feel sorry for yourself and try to look at the opportunities, which sounds ridiculous, but if you're open to seeing them, you will see them and it will transform your life. What does the future look like for Rachel Montgomery? Well, the future's bright, my dear. <laughs> I've gone from zero to a thousand back to work, basically, which is amazing. So I'm getting lots of work as a, as a makeup artist again, but. I discovered my passion through the, the cancer journey, just being honest and writing, writing stuff out. And I've, I've actually, um, I've written a book. It's a companion to anyone going through trauma of any kind, told from my perspective. I'm hoping to have it out before October, but yeah, I'm really proud of it. And I've been told it really helps. And um, because of what I've been doing on social media, I get messages from people wanting to talk and, you know, asking advice, which is fantastic, you know, and it's heartbreaking at the same time. One of the girls that got in touch with me said to me, you don't know me, my mother has passed away, breast cancer, just recently. And she basically said she wanted me to know that her mother found my Instagram account 
and followed it for the last three months and was really comforted. You know, I got a lot of trophies for doing makeup. They never meant anything. I could never understand, you know, why don't I feel special because of these? And then I got that message and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. To have that kind of an impact on another human being in any way, like I just, it blows my mind. So I've written a book that hopefully can do what the Instagram and Facebook account has been doing. My Instagram account is called A Slight Detour, as is my book. You know, it doesn't just have to be for people, you know, taking a detour from your normal health. It's also for people who, you know, when the detour is more than a detour, there's information in there for everyone. I'm really proud of it. I'm really, really proud of it. And, and I, just, I just hope it does what I want it to do. If it helps one person, then that's a trophy for me, mate. That's a real trophy. There's some stay-